Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of visual storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit ProsperitasAgency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S Agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Lane Kawaoka. Lane has been investing for over a decade and now controls 4,500 plus units as owner of CrowdfundAloha.com, SimplePassiveCashflow.com, and reialoha.com, Lane is responsible for finding investment opportunities, analysis, and marketing. Mr. Kawaoka obtained a BS in industrial engineering and an MS in civil engineering and construction management from the University of Washington. In addition to an analytical engineering background, Lane has real-world experience in working as a project manager for over $250 million of capital construction projects in both the public and private sector. Working as a high-paid professional in corporate America and frustrated by traditional wealth-building dogma, Lane was compelled to inspire and mentor other working professionals via his Top 50 Investing Podcast at SimplePassiveCashflow.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lane, and welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Aloha, everybody. So take me back now. You come out as an industrial engineer, and then eventually you find yourself going into the inve- like real estate investment markets. And what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so I kind of grew up in a frugal household. We're all taught to go to school, study hard, get a good job, work at that job for 40, 50 years, investing in the 401k and all that stuff that I don't quite believe in these days. And then part of the way is buy a house to live in because that's where I'll brainwash to think. I didn't, I was never home because I was working on the road for work all the time. And I just thought it was silly to have this big house all to myself. So I started to rent it out, started to collect the monthly cash flow. And that was where I was hooked with this stuff. That was where my kind of, my path took a pivot and realized that if I just kept on buying a handful of more rentals, I'll be able to quit my job one of these days. Excellent. And so then you basically started in Seattle. Is that right? That's correct. So that's a thing we'll talk about is like sophisticated investors, they stay away from these sexy primary markets such as Seattle, California, Hawaii, New York. Um, sophisticated investors go after cash flow. So we're looking for this um, 
metric called the rent-to-value ratio. So we, we look for something that's 1% or higher. So you take the monthly rent divided by the purchase price, and you're looking for that to be 1% or more. So for example, a lot of the places we'll target are, you know, you'll buy a house for $100,000, which if you live in California, you probably think I'm crazy, but that's how most <laughs> of America lives. And then they'll pay $1,000 a month. So you know, like the price of the property in relation to how much rental income it brings in it's very high, where a lot of these primary markets where a lot of unsophisticated investors just to go and throw money around, a lot of times they're getting like half a percent rent-to-value ratio worse. Oh, definitely. I used to live in Irvine and it was probably the rents were over $3,000, but the houses were all three quarters of a million to 1.5 million. It's pretty wild. Exactly. Exactly. So talk to me a little bit about, you You had mentioned like growing up with some perhaps like limiting mindsets around money and how did you break free of those and how can others do the same? Yeah, I think a lot of it is just, we go off of the models we have, right? And the best models we have are family, parents, and then coworkers once you get into the work sphere. Uh, unfortunately, all this financial advice you hear about there that our parents have bought into and coworkers, family, it, it's all wrong. And I realized this very quick and early when I started to buy more and more rentals, I was making like 20 to 30% returns on my money and I wasn't doing anything special. Again, I don't do any house flipping, wholesaling or any high labor tasks. I'm just a boring buy and hold passive investor. I save my money for 20% down payments and that's all the hardest part right there, saving the money. And I just buy properties that make sense from a cash flow basis and I rinse, wash, repeat. Now, I'm getting like 20, 30% returns on money. Like I said, if people don't believe me, I do a little whiteboard video on my website at simplepassivecashflow.com slash returns. You can see how I break down the numbers. But you can imagine as an early 20-year-old kid, I was like, well, why would I want to put my money in like this supposedly retirement account or 401k where I'm only making 8 to 10% and when it acts like a roller coaster up and down, when I can put it into rental properties, making a higher return and much less volatility. And then I realized the whole system is engineered to keep us working for 40, 50 years by putting our money into these Wall Street products that are heavy in fees that ultimately are taking our retirement away from us. So let's dig in a little more to some of that. There there are all these like counterintuitive rules that rich people tend to follow that the poor and middle class really don't or don't have access to or can't even imagine why you would do that. Like obviously we saw leading up to the 2008 crash, so many people had their primary investment was their home and everyone just believed it's going to go up and up and up. And then all the speculation and subprime mortgages and a, a host of other factors left a lot of people underwater. You sort of mentioned not buying a home to live in. What is that about? And why should people not do that? Yeah, it essentially comes down to you want to buy things or assets that make money for you. A primary residence or a home does not make money for you. It does go up with the pace of inflation. Most financial advice tells you to go buy a home to live in. And a lot of this is propagated by the National Realtors Association, the Lenders Association that wants you to churn and buy houses so they can collect their commissions. But when you stop to think about it, this is the big mistake that a lot of people make. They pay down their primary residences, 
and that equity is just sitting dead. It's not working for them. Where I mean, you you take somebody. Let's just take an example for you know, a young person buying a starter home at six hundred thousand dollars. To come up with that down payment, you're going to need one hundred twenty grand. You can put that money into that primary residence and have it sit there doing nothing, going up at the pace of inflation merely. Or you can put it into one, two, three, four, four or five rental properties out in the Midwest or the South. Now you have four or five families paying down your mortgage, putting their heart, sweat, and tears into building that equity for you, as opposed to you doing it yourself, which is like you just paying yourself in a way. It's not like somebody's doing it for you. And that's the big difference between taking that money and buying your home to live in or buying rental properties. Now there's a paradigm shift between this advice. Like most financial advice is going out to the masses. Folks that are really bad with their money, they, they spend more than they make, credit card debt. That's most of America out there. The folks that I work with are typically working professionals. They're good with their money. These are the, the good boys and girls out there that kind of listen to maxing out their 401ks. You know, the, the advice going out to them is very different what is going out, what they should follow than what is put out by financial gurus like Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey to pay down debt and buy a home to live in. Like for these types of people who are financially responsible, they need to be going on the offense. And instead of buying a house to live in, they need to be buying rental properties or assets that grow their net worth quicker and safer over time. Whereas I still think like for most people, they should buy a house to live in because it's essentially a forced savings account because it forces them to put money away every month. But does that make sense? There's a paradigm shift between folks that are good with their money and, and most of America who aren't. Oh, absolutely. And it's really no surprise, though. It's not something anyone's really taught at any level of education, and it is probably purposefully hidden from everyone. So if you're born into a family that has a family office or something, if you're talking north of nine figures, then like you're going to be taught something very different. I think Abigail Disney like recently wrote an article in Slate about how basically from birth, she was taught to just protect her dynastic wealth that Walt Disney had accumulated over the years. And from there, you can really see that it is a tale of two worlds, right? If you weren't born into that, you have almost no exposure. I think one of the few places people get exposed is maybe college, right? Like you just randomly get stuck with a roommate that's had like exorbitant wealth or something and it's they come from a different planet. But other than that, there's really not many ways to like pierce the veil. I think that we see a little bit more now with decentralized decentralization of information, whether it's through podcasts, TikTok, other platforms like that. But for really for centuries, right, this has just been totally closed off to the have nots. And a lot of these, this, the financial tactics that the wealthy do that I've learned as I grew my portfolio, I started to join different masterminds to get around other high net worth accredited investors. And I started to learn just from peer relationships how to wealthy do things. And I started to piece it together myself. And the frustrating thing is a lot of these tactics are very simple and they're not out of the, the reach of the normal um, American. Anybody could do these, but they're very counterintuitive. And, it, and this is what really frustrates me. There's so much financial dogma put out there to brainwash people to do the complete opposite. Keep them working forever. Yeah, it's really... Interesting. I've talked to a few guests about 
the divide between labor and capital and that most people just really don't have an understanding of that. They generally think there's just little money. There's just poor people and rich people. But even when you look at someone like a rookie 18, 19 year old playing in the NBA that suddenly gets like a massive seven or eight figure contract, that person is still labor, right? Like until they put their money to work for them, they're still labor. They just get paid a lot more in their hourly rate than someone flipping burgers or something like that, or even high paid attorneys or something. It's all sort of gradations of labor. Whereas once you actually make your money work for you and work for itself, like then that's when you sort of transition to capital. But even that dichotomy is something like if you ask most people, what's the difference between labor and capital? I bet 50% of people would have no idea what you're even talking about. And I guess said in a different way, there's two kinds of people. There's people who are trading time for money, like the basketball player or the burger flipper. And there's people who have money working harder for them. And so, you know, you, you go look at back in, in the, the house by Fonshrum, right? When you have all that down payment sitting in your house, it's not working for you. You're the one going to your job every day, working harder than your money. But if you can deploy that capital into investments that make more money for you, you start to tip the scales into your favor. And I think over time, it takes, this is the, the hard part, it takes maybe five to 10 years of doing the right things, the counterintuitive things that we're all taught to buy assets, to use debt appropriately and prudently, to go and um, build up your passive cash flow category and get on that capital side of this table. And so you mentioned some things about retirement accounts and why should people not be using those as investment vehicles? Yeah, it's another, there are two big sides of this. The first side is taxes, which you can come back to. The second side is when you're in a, a company-sponsored 401k plan, TSB, any of these things, the idea is good. But unfortunately, once you're in one of these programs, you're captive to the garbage investments that are stuck that, that you're, you have options to. The analogy I use a lot of times is it's like when you're in high school. You, know, you could only go to the high school cafeteria, right? You could only have the options, the cafeteria options of, that were, they tasted bad. At least in my high school, it was expensive. It's like the options within your 401k. It's heavy fees. They're not that great. The retail investments served out to the masses. Now, when you, and if you know how your guys' school was, when you were a senior and you, you did good with your grades, you got an off-campus pass and you went off-campus and you got better food, cheaper, more taste. That's the equivalent of going outside of the cafeteria of the 401k, which you can take your money out and self-direct your funds or just take it out of the dance system altogether. Um, so on the tax side, right, there's four big reasons why the wealthy don't use these retirement accounts. First, a lot of this, the argument of keeping your money in tax-free and taking it out later is predicated on you, know, you making less money in your dying age, your retirement age. But I don't know about you, but I think a lot of the listeners here, myself included, are going to make more money in the future because we are on the dichotomy of on the capital side, having our money grow for us and work harder than us. And eventually we're going to make more money in our retirement age. Therefore, we're going to be in a higher tax bracket in the future. Therefore, it makes sense to pay your taxes on it now, get it out of the system now, as opposed to the future where it's going to be higher. Secondly, how else is, are we going to pay for all these government entitlement programs? Inflation is one of them. 
Inflation is going to essentially lower the value of our money. And I'm taking a side note here, but going back to the taxes, taxes are going to be going up. How else is the government going to be paying for this? Therefore, one would assume that taxes are lower today than in the future. So let's get it out of these programs now. The government's number one source of potential revenue is in these retirement funds, and they know it. And they can tax at it at whatever they want. Essentially, they have a blank check, a lien on your retirement funds. Thirdly, I don't want to wait till I'm 65, 70 years old to get at my retirement funds. Most people I work with were able to get financially free in five to 10 years or less. And lastly, and here's the big kicker, right? I think the big argument with retirement funds is that it grows tax-free. But if you're investing in real estate, which creates a paper loss, oftentimes you're able to offset the taxes as it is. So there really is no advantage to retirement funds. But here's where things, I think a lot of people have not heard about the side of real estate where you can do things like cost segregations, bonus depreciation, and create a huge paper loss in the beginning of your investment. And possibly take this loss, these passive activity losses, and lower your W-2 ordinary income. So we have a lot of doctors that make 600 grand a year, and we use the passive losses from the investments to lower them into a lower uh, tax bracket, saving hundreds of thousands of dollars of taxes. Now, if you're investing in retirement account, you do not get these passive losses to play these different games and levers on your taxes. And this is how the wealthy play the game. This is the big difference. And I think what most people just don't realize it. In fact, most CPAs don't realize how this is played. So how can people making less than say $100,000 a year not pay taxes in the same way that the wealthy are able to not pay taxes? Well, I think if you're under $100,000, the, the low-hanging fruit here is you can take up to $25,000 of passive losses a year to lower your income. And when I was a younger engineer, you know, making $80,000, $90,000, this is what I did. I, and I brought my AGI down to $65,000, $70,000. That's a no-brainer, right, if you're under $100,000. Most of my clients, they make well over six figures, and they have the firepower to invest fifty, dollars $100,000 plus a year into these deals that allow them to strip out a lot of passive losses to begin with. Um, and then I think this is speaking to those lower net worth, lower paid professionals. It's just, it's, it's not a get rich scheme. This is a get rich surely thing. It took me, I started, I bought my first run in 2009. It wasn't until 2015 until I had 11 single family home rentals. And from there, I parallelled that into buying some apartment buildings after that. But in the first few years, I was just limited to how much money I could save. Just good old-fashioned saving my money. So how can people build a portfolio over time from scratch? Yeah, so a lot of this is predicated on where you're starting out with in terms of your net worth. If you're under $100,000 net worth, and you're in credit card debt, well, you're, I'm probably not the person to listen to. You probably have issues with either you don't make enough money or you spend too much of it. And that's just a personal finance issue. And there's hundreds of blogs and podcasts out there for that. I work with people who, once they get up themselves to a certain level, they make a modest sixty dollars to $80,000 a year salary and above. And they're at least able to save maybe five to $10,000 a year. 
Now that's something that we can work with. And what we normally have them do is go buy a single family home, turnkey rental, something that's very easy to operate and manage and start to grow their investing experience from there. It's, it's going to probably cash flow modestly. It's not going to be any life-changing thing, but the key is to buy more and more rentals and grow your portfolio slowly over time. And in fact, this is just how I did it. In 2009, I bought my first rental. A couple of years later, I saved up to buy another duplex and I just being steamrolled from there. Once, if you're talking about somebody who's at least a half a million dollars net worth or a million dollar net worth or greater or a credit investor, now they could potentially get involved in syndications and private placements, which my opinion are stronger deals operated by professionals where your money grows and you get cash, cash flow in the interim in much more institutional deals. And this is where I, when I had 11 rental properties, you know, I started to realize that the wealthy don't own rental properties after a certain point. It gets you off the ground, that's for sure. But, you know, with 11 rental properties, I maybe had an eviction or two every year, some kind of big catastrophe that happened every quarter. And which is fine because I had professional property management to do my, my legwork for me. But all this for a few hundred dollars per property and then 11 properties, and if you do the math, that's $3,000 of passive cash flow a month. Nothing to complain about, but I don't know what American family can survive off $3,000 a month. Most people, most of my clients, their goal is $10,000 a month or greater. Therefore, you're going to need 30 of these rental properties and an exception rate multiplied by three. So an eviction every other month, some kind of big issue every few weeks. It's just not scalable. And this is where I started to join different higher level masterminds, get around other accredited investors. And all these guys were investing in private placements and syndications and able to diversify um, over many, you know, dozens of deals. Interesting. So in terms of the property management side, like what are some of the best practices for managing properties remotely and vetting property managers? Yeah. And this is on the beginning side, right? Like when you're buying your own single families directly on your own. You want to find good property management companies to work with. One of the big mistakes I see is people go after, they, they just go to Yelp, right? Or any, some random source for sources for real estate operators and property managers. It, it's a mistake. I think you have to go and find a small boutique property management company that specializes in property management, as opposed to going to the big brokerage houses, all your big household names that you would think buy and sell real estate, you know, at Typically, when you go to those big sources, you're just getting the guy who can't sell houses. And property management is a lot harder than managing or selling houses, uh, that's for sure. How do you find where these good boutique property management companies are? It's all through referrals. And I think as an investor, the big thing is building your network with other pure passive investors doing the same thing and growing your, your database of reliable operators to work with. So do you recommend people that have a 401k or other retirement account, like start to strategically withdraw from those accounts to then invest it into cash flowing assets? Yeah, it depends, right? But what we normally do is we take a look at their adjusted gross income. It's under the highest tax bracket of $330,000 married while jointly. Yeah, we leak it out slowly as the game plan. But that's only after we've got a proof of concept with the client. I get it. Most people think that taking money out of your retirement accounts is an absolute sin. 
right? It's crazy for most people. Um, granted, people need to realize that we're not taking the money out and buying jet skis or buying you know toys with it. We're not. Yes, it's out of the retirement account, but it certainly is still for our long term growth. But I would suggest most people start off with any cash they have or take a HELOC from their primary residence that they have debt equity there. Get that money working, get proof of concept, then go after selling properties or um, withdrawing money slowly out of your retirement accounts. So what are some of your rules to live by when it comes to investing? Yeah, why do I keep coming back to real estate? Three big rules there. Real estate is a hard asset. I don't have any paper assets like stocks or mutual funds, especially because they're heavy fees, stocks, because, you know, to me, the price is, I don't know what dictates the price, right? It's all emotion. The president of Lululemon says something dumb about the tights, the, the stock price tanks. And to me right now, the stock market is at all time highs because of all the fake money being pumped into the system. I, the, the next big thing of why I like real estate is that it's leverageable. The government creates these great lending programs for us to lend money very cheaply and good tax benefits too. And at the end of the day, real estate is a hard asset that produces cash flow. Very little things hit all these markers, right? Like gold is a hard asset, but it doesn't produce cash flow and you can't really leverage the thing. Um, so speaking of gold, like how do you feel about the rise of cryptocurrency and do you get involved with that at all? I stay in my lane. Most people over a million dollars to $10 million net worth, they don't go crazy with this stuff. Their, their holdings of crypto might be in the one to 10% range and that's a big range. but. Mm -hmm. I think you see a lot of young people buy crypto and it's a majority part of their portfolio and they're getting rich off of it, but easy come, easy go is what I say. I, the reason why I like residential real estate um, is because we value add the properties. We, we force appreciate them as opposed to relying on market appreciation. It's just relying on, on luck. Whereas force appreciation, if we're going in there rehabbing units, maybe putting four to $6,000 of upgrades, new flooring, new appliances, new paint jobs, some playground equipment at the apartments, and we're having, we're improving the product. And therefore tenants pay a higher rent and we increase the net operating income of the building, thus increasing the, the market price. I just like that game plan better because it's more reliable. We, we control our own destiny in our hands. And at the end of the day, if you, you look at some of the wealthiest people out there, they're not traders. They don't buy things and do nothing to it, buy low, so high. That's what people who rely on luck do. The people that create wealth, true wealth, are people who add value to the system and they get compensated for that. And that's why I want, when I set up a business, I want to create the systems and processes to do that so that it's a long-term sustainable business. So Lane, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? Yeah, I, one of the biggest failures I had was investing with the wrong person, lost all my money, which happens. Um, hopefully you mitigate this by surrounding yourself with the right peer group. So you don't invest with the wrong people. The lesson learned here was I don't work with anybody I don't know or trust or have somebody that I organically know that I trust give me the thumbs up or the stamp of approval to work with somebody that they've worked with in the past. And 
it's taken me a while to get to this point, building my network and relationships to encompass pretty much everybody that I would potentially work with out there. And I didn't have this in the beginning, but that's really the gold standard. There's a lot of people doing deals out there. Who do you trust? How do you verify track record? That's a big thing. Oh, absolutely. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? I like the uh, Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary Keller. People are like looking to learn academically about residential rental real estate. But I'm not a big fan of you know reading books. I think people read books too much. What I would suggest people is learn how to analyze properties, right? We talked about the one person rent to value rule. If a property meets that criteria, then put it into the rental property analyzer. Um, you can download it at my website at, for free at simplepassivecashflow.com slash analyzer. And instead of reading all these books, go and analyze 30 properties. You're going to learn a lot more that's pertinent to what you're actually doing by doing that than just getting book smart. I think too many people suffer from this thing called shelf help. They know all academically about this stuff, but they never put it into practice and never do it. I'm a believer in the philosophy of the 70-20-10 rule where you know, 10% of learning is just the books, the academics, where 20% is surrounding yourself with the right people, learning from your peers, learning from the network. But the majority of it, the 70% is doing it, making mistakes, going through the process. Absolutely. So what's one of the best or most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And feel free to interpret the word investments as broadly as you like. Yeah, investing in yourself, right? Educating yourself, paying to get into different masterminds and getting around other high net worth accredited investors. There's a saying out there, your network is your net worth. I certainly think this is much more true once your network passes a certain point. And maybe we'll mm -hmm. just arbitrarily call that half a million dollars net worth. When you're under that, I think you just have to put your head down and, and, and grind, whether that be mm -hmm. at your day job or buying your first few rental properties. But once you get off the ground, and I think that's where your network and your synergies really, you know, become more important. I think a lot of people make the mistake of just networking like crazy right off the bat. And they haven't really gotten that flywheel moving on their business side or their investing side. And they, they probably should put more effort into building up their portfolio, building up their business first. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice that they should ignore? Advice to ignore? Well, one of the biggest things is like never take financial advice from people who are not financially free. And this is likely not your parents, not your coworkers that have been stuck at the job for 30, 40, 50 years, likely not your peers. There's a lot of like websites out there that preach the frugality model the minimalistic plan, which is great if you just want to live a small life. But the way we do things at Simple Passive Cashflow, we live large. We live the fat fire lifestyle where we grow our money prudently using good debt and it grows exponentially over time. Find people that you want to model and do what they do. But I think too many people, they, they just go off of like, advice from people that they respect but that person they respect may not be the best person in that arena absolutely so how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your career i think mentors and advisors are a little bit overrated if somebody is a legit 
at high level, they probably don't want to interact with some newbie or some person right out of college or high school. But there are a lot of free resources out there where you're not going to get direct mentorship, podcasts, books, great way to get started. I think for a younger person, you got to really piece it together. You're not going to get that individual thing. I've transitioned. When I first bought my first rental in 2009, I devoured all the podcasts and books out there, did it the freeway. And then I started to get more involved in masterminds, which is a form of group coaching. But today I've stepped up to individual consultants and coaches to get what I need. And I have the money to pay for that. But so I think that's a level, right? That's a process to get yourself to that next level. Mm. Um, in the beginning, you're just not going to be able to afford it. Uh, you should probably put most of your money to investing or to your business. Definitely. In the last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has most improved your life? I just take it one day at a time. Um, always trying to figure out what can be improved in the system. I'm a big fan of continuous improvement or Kaizen. I went to school to be an industrial engineer, which is very systems process oriented. You try and systematize everything so that you can see the small nuances and processes every day. And you try and make small changes, like 1% change. You know, shoot for 1% growth every day. If you multiply 1% on top of 1% many days in a row, you'll be surprised. Oh, definitely. You can get pretty far with just those. Yeah, just progress every day. That's all you need. Everyone wants to swing for the fences, and then that's why why so many people strike out. But if you're actually just putting in the work day by day, making the right decisions, and seeing opportunities when they arise, so that you can your position to take advantage of them, that's when things can really come together for you. Right. The the big swings for the fences. Those are the things that just sell YouTube videos and blog article views. It's the sexy stuff. But Darren Hardy, he's got a book called The Compound Effect, which the premise is you're just building on top of small habit changes, on top of small habit changes at a time. And overall, the, the compound effect over time is going to get you the results that you want. It's not the sexy thing, but it is the, the kind of the more stoic approach. Yeah, I think one of the big problems we have is that people will just essentially come out of nowhere and blow up or something or just like making a ton of money and People only see that part of it, which is less than 1% of what actually happened. They don't see all the late nights. They don't see like all the work that was put in and other or networking or the ideation and actually putting, actually taking action. So then people just think like, oh, okay, I just need this little trick and then I can blow up too. And it's almost invariably does not work that way. Exactly. I, I see a mistake. A lot of people, they like to geek out on uh, the biographies of very famous people. I think that's a mistake. Like I, I think anybody who's done great things like Elon Musk or even myself included, right? Like who would have known that I would have created a real estate investment company now owning over 5,000 rental property units. And I'll tell people like, I got lucky. I, I made this website and podcast and it got really popular, but don't look what I did and try and repeat it because a lot of luck came into what I've done today. And I don't think if I would have done it a hundred times, I would have been able to repeat that. So therefore, don't quite repeat my processes and my path to get here. In fact, what you want to do is look for the people who have marginal success with subpar talent. I think those are the people that you want to emulate. 
because those are the people getting to a certain level of success with less talent and processes than possibly you are. And those are the things to emulate over time. You know, it's like that you don't want to, some people argue about this. You don't want to take fitness advice for some guy who has 6% body fat and a six, six pack, right? Like they're just genetically wired like that. You may want to take financial or uh, fitness advice from somebody who, who struggled. They don't, they didn't have the God given genes. Yeah. It's just really good advertising when you do have the former and it's just, and so it's just a vicious sort of cycle right there. Exactly. It's, I don't want to take financial advice from an Elon Musk or business advice from somebody like that. Cause they just live on a different planet. They have different circumstances. I want to take it financial advice from, you know, somebody like me where I was just a, a lowly engineer making, you know, low six figures. And I just put my money away in something very, you know, repeatable that anybody can do. I want to follow that path. Definitely. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Ooh, that's a tough one. Billboards <laughs> go out to the masses. Indeed. I'm not, I don't speak to the masses. I only speak to those niche people who are, you know, good with their money and like to save and do very counterintuitive things over time. But, you know, maybe, I, maybe the big thing is just question everything, right? There's a reason mm. why the system is engineered the way it, it is. If everybody said what I, what I'm preaching is go out and buy a hand, handful of rentals or go into some syndication deals, you'd be financially free in five to 10 years. And it's just, unfortunately, society would crumble at that point. We can't have people doing that because who would design the bridges? Who would get our coffee? Who would do the dentist stuff that we need in our mouth? No, we need people to work. <laughs> we don't need, we, we can't have them being, buying all these rental properties and getting financially independent. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I talk with a lot of people on the show about essentially questioning everything, right? About everyone, you're just born into this society and you just think, okay, this is just, this is what it is. And everyone just takes this, for a lot of, most people take this fatalist approach of like, you just have to operate, do what it says. Even our schools are basically engineered that way. But it's like, all of this stuff is only this way because some people decided to at different points throughout history. There is no preordained, if we did all of human history over again, that it would turn out exactly the same way. Like, it's just a bunch of random different things interacting with different causes and effects, different events and different decisions being made that like, oh, now we have this system, but it's like, we could have a totally different one. We could do literally whatever we wanted, but it's that lack of imagination that the system forces upon people. So it's a hey, stay in your lane, work your job for 40 years, buy a house, have kids, spend a lot of money on what are essentially liabilities or just random junk. Um, and then you die and that's it. But it's, we can actually do something completely different than that. And in into infinity, there's so many different options out there. So yeah, question everything. And, you know, I think like the four hour work was another book that I read that really, you know, freed up my mind to design my lifestyle. But how do you do that? If you don't have money is a big part of this. If you're able to buy residential real estate and kind of accumulate over time, you know, that money buys you freedom is the ability to do what you want, where you want, with whom you want, and dictate and design your lifestyle how you want. Totally. 
So Lane, what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, and techniques? I don't really do that stuff. I try and just work as hard as I can, work long hours. I'm still in the growth phase of my whole plan at this point. I get it. Some people out there, they need to take time for themselves, self-care. Maybe I just, if anything, I, I mean, I work out, do some CrossFit, get some good sleep, seven to eight hours. At least I, tr I try to. Just a lot of that, the physical stuff powers the, the mental and then the workload. So I, I think it all goes hand in hand. You got to take care of your body to achieve what you want. Oh, absolutely. You're actually the first person who said sleep, which I think is probably indicative of people do a lot of stuff to just compensate for not sleeping, myself included. I'm just like, eh, that's boring. I'm going to do something else. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, again, it's like the whole people want that sexy red pill. They, they oh, want yeah. that. They want to feel like they are accomplishing big things if they don't sleep. But I, I, know, I think it's important. Sometimes it's not. When I quit my day job and started to do my business full time, I started to realize that I had literally all the time I had. So it wasn't quite you know, time. It was more like energy. So I'm the manager of my energy. I can sit here for 15 hours a day and do my work. Or, but in some cases, it might be better just to do it for eight hours, but in a much higher energy state. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree. So Lane, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. And that brings me to my last question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? I think when I was first getting started as an investor, it's very daunting. You're buying properties, not where you live. You can't visit them. A lot of, t a lot of the properties that we buy, we don't visit them initially. The, the first property is the hardest property to buy. I remember very vividly talking to a couple of people out there, just random strangers that were passive investors doing the same thing I was and asking them like point blank, Hey, is this real? And these random people, I don't know who they are to this day. They gave me the reinsurance that, you know, just, Hey, run your numbers, make sure it cash flows. And you know, there are things that are going to be bumps in the road, but overall, this is the plan to get to financial freedom, man. And I went with it and I don't know who those people are today. But I think that's a nice thing that they did. And that's what I try and do for folks these days. When they sign up for my, on my website, they complete the investor questionnaire. What I normally do is I spend a little time with them, you know, 15 minutes, point them in the right direction. We may never talk again, but my goal is to just point them in the right direction, investing wise, tax wise, and just to save them some time. Because I know that this investing in real estate thing works. It's just separating the noise from you know, everything else out there. Oh, definitely. Lane, thank you again so much for joining me today. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to speak with you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely, anytime. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, making unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. 
For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.